Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like you and our partners at Tallman Equipment. Tallman Equipment prides itself in having more linemen tools in stock than anyone else. And now, when you're shopping online at tallmanequipment.com, look for the truck logo that says Fast Ship on hundreds of items on their website. That logo means that item is in stock and ready to ship the same day in most cases. When it comes to getting the tools and equipment linemen need, trust Tallman. Line 11 Clothing Company, making apparel for our first responders with a positive message to patriots that you can be proud of. The proceeds of the cost goes to helping our foundation ignite the fire for father engagement. Give them a follow at Line 11 Clothing on Instagram. And finally, Monzingo Knives. Each knife is created with craftsmanship that only a tradesman could provide. Find them on Instagram at Monzingo Knives and get your American-made Monzingo knife today. Welcome to the Show Up Dad podcast, where our mission is to improve the well-being of children by increasing the proportion of children growing up with an involved, responsible, and committed father. The Show Up Dad Foundation, Inc. is a 5013C organization that encourages dads to become more than just a paycheck. Today's guest is Timothy Arrigo. He is a father of two, husband, and mental health professional with over 10 years' experience helping men and women overcome their self-destructiveness and align themselves with their true purpose. Tim is the former men's ministry director at his place church and runs a ministry called Souls for Souls. He is currently the CEO of Beyond Driven Enterprises and a father to a five-month-old son and four-year-old daughter. Through his own spiritual battles with vices and self-destruction, he discovered a passion to help others after giving his life to Jesus Christ. Welcome to the show, brother. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me, bro. Absolutely, brother. It's an honor to have you on here. And uh, like always, tell us your story, brother. Yeah, so um, my story is uh, I'm 37. I was born uh, I was born on the East Coast and I came out to California when I was about three years old. Um, I was raised in Southern California. Typical Southern California kid. I was a skateboarder, played music, um, was, you know, just I was always kind of I was the sensitive kid, man. I was the sensitive kid. But I was also just the daredevil, man. I was the risk taker. Um, I was the guy that was the extreme guy, always trying new stuff. Um, and I, uh, you know, growing up in in Orange County, you know, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, really great music and, and really cool stuff with skateboarding. So I really latched onto that scene. And uh, yeah, so that was, you know, my early life was just really full with skateboarding and um playing music. Uh, Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters was my drum teacher. Oh, wow. It was cool, man. Like I had a, I had a great childhood, man. Um, I had a lot of great experiences in my childhood. Um, I have an older brother. Uh, He's three years older than me and him and I greatest memories, man. We used to ride our bikes down to uh, 
warehouse music and we used to you know flip through cds and yeah a cool cover on a on a cd you know go yeah take a risk and then go home and play it and either it was terrible right or it was great mm-hmm. so uh some of my greatest memories man with my brother going to the video store and stuff so and then um you know my parents uh got a divorce uh when mm-hmm. i was like 13 and um there was a lot of, there was no conversation about it. My parents were going through a lot at the time. And one day my dad just walked down with some suits on his finger and um, no warning, no nothing. And my dad just said, I'm leaving. And um, I was like, wait, what? Like, when are you coming back? And he goes, "Um, not. And I'm like, wait, like what? What? Like, you're not coming back. And uh, yeah, my dad, ended up going and get an apartment down the street. And, um, you know, my mom during the time was just really struggling going through a lot of, I think my mom felt really guilty about the divorce, about the way it went down. And, um, I think she carried a lot of guilt about it. And so my mom kind of was going through her own kind of midlife crisis at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my brother and I had already kind of been parting ways, you know, he, I think you get to the age where you're like, I don't want to have my little brother around. And he was kind of in that phase. Yeah. And uh, at that time I had already started getting high. Uh, I started getting high when I was like 13, started Mm -hmm. smoking weed. Um, That was kind of a part of the scene with skateboarding back in the day. It was kind of like nowadays, you know, soccer moms drop their kids off at the skate park. But when I was growing up, it was skating was, you know, they used to have those stickers. Skateboarding is not a crime and skating wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily uh, something that, people, you know, look fondly upon. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, my parents got a divorce and I was getting in some trouble and my parents, they sent me to, uh, a private Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, uh, going to Catholic, uh, mass on Sundays. Yeah. Uh, but I never experienced, like I experienced little moments of the Holy spirit. I felt like even looking back, but I remember even sitting in church and looking at Jesus on the cross and just being so confused. Yeah. You know, like, like, I don't understand. Like, and nobody ever really took the time to like explain it to me. You know, I did CCD and I did all this stuff at church, but I never was shown about, I was shown a lot about religion, but not a lot about a relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, man, I uh, basically, um my parents got that divorce and I went to the Catholic high school and, um, you know, I just got super isolated, man. All my friends went off to public school and I was in this private Catholic school and I wasn't a jock and I, you know, I wasn't really into school that much like scholastic. So I didn't achieve much academically. So I just didn't fit in, man. Yeah. And, uh, I think that was really a year that was really a pivotal turning point for me. And, uh, you know, after that, after the divorce and going to that school, I ended up going to, I went to public school the next year and, mm-hmm. um, I ended up getting, uh, kicked out of public school within a month. I didn't even go to class. I was just doing graffiti on the walls and like, just, I was just anti-authority. I was yeah. just mad, man. I was angry. You know, I was angry, man. I had a lot of anger in me and, uh, I was only angry cause I was really hurt, you know, and the anger was the only thing that gave me a sense of control in my life, you know, like, yeah. I just, I just, I had unresolved anger. I remember one time my dad came over and uh, I was really high and my dad 
was like, what's going on with you? And he was like shaking me. And he was like, he grabbed me by the shoulders. He's like, what's going on with you, man? And I, mm -hmm. and, um, and I broke down crying and I was like, man, everything else is messed up around here. Mm -hmm. uh, I always remember that moment. And uh, so, yeah, I ended up getting kicked out of public school. And then I was in a continuation school down in San Juan Capistrano. And I went down there. It was the first school ever built in Orange County. It's uh, right next to the San Juan Mission. Okay. And, uh, yeah, they basically, I don't know whose idea this was, but they took every... <laughs> troubled kid from every school district and they put yeah. one school so i'm in there with like you know of course like first day i'm getting you know i'm getting checked in the hallway and i'm like okay this is like this is real right like yeah. you got to show up and you gotta so that was where really like i just got even more masked more walled up more just like mm -hmm. i gotta show up here i gotta be tough i gotta i gotta fight i gotta you know and more and more drugs were available and uh i got hooked on 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 speed i got hooked on speed when i was like 16 wow um i had a dude that i met there and him and i started smoking speed and i ended up graduating the school early because i kind of cheated my way through and mm -hmm. i graduated high school uh like right before my 18th birthday and um within like six months bro i was fully full-blown addicted to speed and, um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of supervision, you know, I was just kind of doing my own thing, living with my mom. My mom was going to college full time, you know, yeah. God bless my mom. My mom went to college again and like, you know, she only had her high school diploma and she ended up going back to college and getting her master's and becoming a teacher. So she was in the middle of all of that. So I really didn't have any good role, yeah. role models. You know, the guys that I looked up to in my childhood, and in my formative years, they weren't, they weren't like, you know, honorable men, you know, they were, yeah. they were guys that were just into, it was kind of like the old same thing. Like these guys have money, they sell drugs, they have the cars, like they have the women, it was all external, you know? So like, I always thought like, oh, if I just had that external stuff, like, and it's all about the external and whoever you need to step on to get what you need, you know, do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, got addicted to the meth, ended up going into a meth-induced psychosis at 17 and got sent to the psych ward. Wow. And uh, went into the psych ward, barely came out of that one, man. I was in I was in the psych ward for like two weeks um, and uh, came out of the psych ward, went to my first treatment center, uh, turned 18 in there and uh, basically counted the days, got out and then... Um, never went back to doing meth again, but I started doing pills and then I got a knee injury i was uh i was skateboarding blew my knee out skateboarding mm -hmm. and uh went to the doctor man and had to get a knee surgery and got prescribed oxycontin and that was the undoing because i was basically the poster child for the opioid epidemic wow. this was early 2000s they were heavily prescribing oxys and i got hooked on oxys man and i started doctor shopping i started going to different doctors and my addiction just got worse and worse and worse and then uh you know, I just, somebody told me one day, Hey man, you know, you can sell those, right? Like, and you can make twice as much and you could just do some black tar. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's when I turned to the needle, man. And I turned to the needle and, uh, things went dark for me, real dark. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, man, my life basically consisted of living in motels with a, literally a needle in my neck in the bathroom mirror 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I had no direction, man. I had no purpose. And that, that was the thing that really killed me all those years, man, was like, I knew, I knew I was capable of, of so many great things, you know, but I didn't know how to access it. Yeah. You know, it's like, what can I do? Like, mm-hmm. I know I can do something great and I know God put these gifts in me, but I can't unlock them. Mm-hmm. That was such a frustration for me was like, how do I, how do I access what I have? Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, man, I, I went to, I didn't really get a lot of options to go to treatment. I went to treatment once in an indigent facility up in LA. Um, it was called impact really yeah. great place, man. Great people, but I just wasn't ready, you know? And, uh, I was walking around the streets of Las Vegas, man. And, uh, ended up going to the, the dope man's place and he dude with one eye and a guy with one leg. And I'm Holy literally smokes. in a freaking apartment building in a section eight apartment with a dude with one eye and one leg. And, um, my family knew that I was out there on the streets and, uh, I was like 20, 22 or 23, you know, and my, my mm-hmm. parents were just, the parents weren't even together at the time, but they came together and, uh, you know, man, I found out when I got home, I got the medical bill and then I called them I'm like what, 21 grand. And they're like, yeah, that's because you were, we thought you were dead from the accident, but you were overdosed and we had to bring you back to life. And, um, you know, it was just crazy stuff like that was happening in my life. And I knew God like was watching over me the whole time. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, another time I, I went to the psych unit, I got, I snuck drugs in with me to detox at a hospital. Mm-hmm. I blacked out during the detox and they, I got in a fight with a security guard and they threw me in the psych unit there. And, uh, this was like an underground, this psych unit there was like, it was like hell on earth, man. This mm-hmm. place was like crazy, uh, people down there, like just gnashing of teeth down there. It was crazy. Wow. And, um, I got in a fight there. There was a guy that was like trying to sexually assault this girl. And, uh, while she was sleeping mm-hmm. and I like, I got into an altercation with him and we got in a fight. And, um, when my parents came to visit me, um, they were like, what's going on here? Like, he's got marks all over his face. Like you guys are supposed to be taking care of him. Like, and I don't know what happened after that, but they came and talked to me and let me out. But when I was there, a pastor came to visit me mm-hmm. and he gave me a card and it had a Isaiah, uh, 40, 31 on there. Right. Mm-hmm. You will rise up on wings like Eagles, you run and not grow weary. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, what's trippy is, you know, 12 years later, after that psych unit incident, I got called to work at a facility and I went to the facility and I was like, Oh, I know where this is at. It's right by the hospital. And I walked up on the driveway and 50 feet away on the other side of the fence was that cage, that chain link cage that they uh-huh. like look in where I got in that fight in that psych unit. Wow. And, um, so yeah, man, like my story is just basically, it was just rock bottom after rock bottom, after rock bottom, after rock bottom. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I even had some experiences with, uh, some demonic stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I had some experiences of just, uh, some dark stuff, man, dark people. Like, you know how, when you're affiliating yourself with those kinds of people, it takes you to some dark places, places that most people would never even know exist, you know, when you're oh, yeah. around your car every day. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's a whole nother underworld. Yeah. Darkness and evil. And, um, you know, it came to the point where one day I got a call from my doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. I was 27 at the time and he called me and he said, uh, Hey, 
I had gotten some routine blood work done and he called me and said, Hey man, are you sitting down? I'm like, no, why should I be? He goes, yeah, uh, you got hepatitis C. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And I had just watched my best friend die from cirrhosis of the liver from hepatitis C. Yeah. And, um, I'm like, man, I'm like, and then at the time they didn't have all these new medications they have now, like Harvoni and the Gilead studies weren't done yet. So they, all they had was interferon. Yeah. So I'm like, dang, I got to do interferon. And most people don't even finish the interferon because it makes you suicidal. It makes you so emaciated. Yep. It just kills you, bro. And so I'm, I'm one day I'm doing these interferon injections. And at the time I was on methadone and Xanax and I'm just eating these methadone and I'm like, dude, how, like, how screwed up are you, bro? Like you're, you're doing this interferon, but you're still doing the issue that caused you to have to take this drug to begin with this interferon. And it's like, how delusional are you, man? Yeah. And, um, and that's when I was staring through the crack in my door mm -hmm. and I had an out of body experience for like three seconds. Mm -hmm. I had like a white light experience. I came out of my body and I came in back into my body and I was like, whoa, was, was that my life? Mm -hmm. I heard a voice in my head and I believe it was the Holy Spirit, yeah, voice of God. And it said, this whole time you thought you were in control, but really you're just a slave. Wow. And it seems so cliche for some people, but mm -hmm. this thought in my head, this voice in my head mm -hmm. completely broke me, man. And because the whole time I did, I was, I thought I was in control, man. Like I thought I controlled everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, I immediately sat up on my bed and I had like a panic attack and I'm like, man, I'm like, I got to get off everything. So I walked to the hospital and I'm like, Hey, can you guys detox me? And they're like, yeah, sure. No problem. You know, it's going to, you know, a couple grand or whatever. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'll just pay it later. So I do fill out the paperwork and they're like, what drugs are you on? I go, oh, I'm on methadone. I'm on interferon. And they're like, oh, take the clipboard back. They're like, yeah, we don't de detox anyone off methadone. Number one. And number two, you're on interferon. Yeah. We're not, we highly discourage you from coming off anything, um, while you're on interferon. Wow. So I basically decided to, uh, do it myself. Mm -hmm. So I went home, uh, and as I was walking out, a guy followed me out and he said, Hey man, you know, man, this was a gift from God. He said, Hey man, we can't help you with this guy can. And mm -hmm. he gave me the number to a doctor out in Riverside. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I got the doctor's, you know, information, called him, went and saw him the next day and he gave me some meds and I went home to proceed to do this grassroots detox at my house off, off methadone and Xanax while I was on interferon. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was the craziest experience of my life. Oh, uh, within 24 hours of the detox, I was completely dilute, completely delirious, disoriented, throwing up tremors. Um, and I, and I was already so far into it within 24 hours that I literally like couldn't go back. I was like, if I take anything right, it's probably not even going to help Yeah, because it was so bad. I felt like there was a Doc Martin on my chest, just crushing my chest the entire time. And this went on for a week, no sleep, no food. I could barely drink water and I was on the interferon. So it was, I, I was literally every second of the day feeling like I was going to die. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, uh, about a week into it, I was in my boxers, man. 
and it was like three in the morning and I hit my knees and I told God that he could take my life. Mm -hmm. And I just threw up my hands and I put my head on the ground and I said, have my life. Take my life. You can have it. You can do whatever you want with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's yours. And immediately, man, I felt the presence of God come over me. And uh, I believe that day my life was changed forever. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the day that I accepted, you know, my salvation. And, um, you know, ever since then, my life has been a, on the other side of that detox, something snapped in me because I had realized that I had overcome something that basically everybody told me was impossible. Yeah. Even I thought it was impossible. I, I literally did not think that it was possible for me to overcome that brutal withdrawal all mm -hmm. alone with just me and God in that room. And um, so after that, I just, I just had a passion in me, man. Cause I was always, like I said, sensitive and empathic, intuitive, creative, and I always cared about people, man. But, you know, sometimes like we care so much that we got to pretend like we don't care. Yeah. You know, and that was kind of how I used to live my life. And uh, it was great. Like I just immediately started using my gifts and started working in treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I broke out of that environment, started working in mental health um, and just realized like so many people are struggling, man. And and once mm -hmm. you overcome things in your life, um, you know, you you really realize that you can be an asset for other people. And it really yeah. came from a really early on experience I had after that detox. I got my first job and I was working the graveyard shift. And there was a guy who was outside of the facility. And I walked into the facility that night and I said, you know, I talked to the staff. I said, hey, what's up with that dude outside? And they're like, oh, that guy, F that dude. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, he's he's been out there all day. Like we tried to talk to him. He wants to leave. And I'm like, wait, okay, well, can I talk to him? They're like, Tim, come on, bro. You're wasting your energy, bro. And I'm like, mm -hmm. let me go talk to him. So I walked outside and I talked to him and about an hour later, he was dragging his bags past the window and they were like, bro, what'd you say to him? I'm like, honestly, I'm like, I didn't really say anything profound, bro. I just related to him and I just told him that I understood where he's at. Yeah. And, um, you know, I came back the next day for work and he was waiting for me outside and he kind of had tears in his eyes and he's like, Hey Tim, like, I just want to say thank you for what you did last night. And, uh, if it wasn't for you, I was going to leave. And, um, you know, I walked into the office that night and I was just kind of staring at the wall and I was thinking to myself, like, man, like that felt really good to yeah. help somebody else. And, um, the thought that followed that thought was, um, I want to do that again. Yeah. And then the thought that followed that thought was if you want to give more, you got to be more. Mm, I like that. And I realized that, so my whole personal development journey has been about being more so I could give more. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, you got to be smarter. You got to be in better shape. You got to be communicate better. Like you got to know yourself more. You got to like, you got to walk the fine line, man. Like you got to, you got to be more because you become an asset for other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like you've overcome a lot of things in your life. You develop a unique set of skills, attributes, character, virtues, insight, experience, and wisdom that you can then impart on other people. Mm -hmm. And, um, so really for me, man, like my whole journey in being beyond driven and, and the lifestyle that I live is really just all about service. It's yeah. all really about like giving more, man.
because like, mm-hmm. I found my purpose in service. You know, I really found my purpose in um, the ministries I've been a part of, you know, the businesses that I've created that serve people. Um, I just love watching the light turn on in people, man. I just, yeah. uh, it's like, it's like my new addiction, man. It's like my new drug, you know, like mm-hmm. watching people find their truth and mm-hmm. find the truth. And, um, especially in their relationship with God and just, and not only that, but just in their marriage, being a good husband, being a good father, being a leader, like walking the fine line, because, you know, being a rare man nowadays is rare. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, I, I just, um, it's been a great journey, man. And and God has been with me the whole way. And, Mm. um, I'm just, I'm blessed, you know, like I, yeah, that's, that's pretty much where I'm at now. Yeah. It's good to see how far you've come Timothy. And I thank you for sharing your story. I mean, that was, that was crazy. I know there's probably a lot more into it. You could get more oh, yeah. adapt and everything, but, uh, oh, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot more, uh, story <laughs> there inside that story for sure. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, I, I think it's amazing how far you've come, dude. And just the steps you've taken to be better for other people. You know what I mean? I like what you said about being more so you can give more. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's where the world is now. You know, I think a lot of times people are just so narrow-minded to where they just want to hold on to everything. You know, they don't want to share anything. They don't want to share knowledge. They don't want to share help. They don't want to share anything. You know what I mean? And their world literally gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But when you give more, you receive more, right? And I think that's that's a, a universal code that everything everybody should live by. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is all this stuff that you overcame, Tim, how did that pain when it was in your life, right? How did that really like start to shape your life to where you are at where you're at now in your relationship with God, in your relationship with your wife, in the relationship with your children? How, how did you use that pain to do that? Well, I look at adversity as the greatest teacher. Yes. You know? And James, it says, count it all joy when you go through trials of any kind, because it builds your endurance and your perseverance and your faith, and then you'll be perfect, lacking nothing. So mm-hmm. I look at adversity as the greatest teacher, you know, like, um, you know, all that adversity in my life, it really shaped and molded my character mm-hmm. and it shaped and molded um, my heart. So I could really... Um, empathize with people and understand where they're at. I mean, I, I always say I'd be more afraid of who I'd be had I not gone through that stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I live by a philosophy, um, you know, that life happens for you, mm. you know, and especially, you know, God is notorious for, you know, working the things out that you go through and, and using that design to, you know, in the end to, to totally radically transform who you are. So that pain Mm-hmm. Uh, your pain can be turned into purpose and, and personal power. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think your pain is really to be understood. Like you got to be with your pain. You got to yes. stop running from your pain and you got to, you have to learn to just be with it and be mm-hmm. in silence with it and learn to uh, embrace that part of you, not holding on to it and not dwelling in it and not sitting in it, but really like accepting it. You know, I always mm-hmm. tell people you can't conquer what you don't confront. 
right? You know? And it's like, you have to acknowledge that it's like, okay, I'm wounded, man. And like, this is real, you know? And even in the beginning for me, like I learned early on that, you know, my, my drug use was never the problem. It was the way that I solved problems. Yep. You know? And what was there on the other side of that was a mountain of unresolved pain. Mm -hmm. and, and a part of it was, I didn't even know who I was. I didn't even know who I was, man. I never even got, I was so high for so many years. I never even got a chance to even know myself. And so that pain really gave me the ability to reach people. Mm -hmm. And uh, because through our own experience, it's like, it's like, what's, you know, what's more powerful than that? It's like my mm -hmm. experience, I've actually experienced that I've lived through that. And um, with all my clients that I work with, it's like, I've been through all that, you know, nine out of 10 of those experiences. Yeah. And, um, you know, going through those experiences, we, it, it, it does something to the way, you know, it, it allows you to have a degree of empathy mm -hmm. that I think is difficult to have otherwise, you know, and true emotional understanding of, um, you know, you really just you want to be in a place of, Hey, like, and I understand and, and I can really relate mm -hmm. and I can, I can show you a direction and some things that maybe you're not seeing because all of us have blind spots, yeah. you know, and when you've been through that stuff and you've driven that road and you've traversed that path, you can kind of see those blind spots for people and you can help them kind of shortcut their success. Mm -hmm. And, um, so for me, man, like, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, brother, like, where would I be had I not gone through that stuff? You know, I obviously yeah. wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. You know, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty crazy. Like when I think about my life and um, how God has basically used my pain as a platform. Mm. Oh, and, uh, you know, your pain is your pulpit. Yep. You know? and, and you can truly um, bring so much value to people's lives um, just based on you know, what you've learned and what you've overcome. And, and that's, that was part of my obsession. Like I was always an obsessed dude. I was always obsessed, you know, mm -hmm. whatever I was about, I was obsessed with it. And, um, you know, really stepping into that place of, um, like, I just want to know more and I want to be able to help more people. So mm -hmm. I need to be, I need to know myself more and I need to know like what really kept me stuck. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah, I have a passion for wanting to reach people of any kind in any situation. So mm -hmm. now you kept saying stuck. This is the second time you, you've said it. You said it earlier and then now. With that being said, I've heard people say the same thing, you know, saying that they felt stuck. They, they knew that they had all these gifts, these talents, right? They just yeah. didn't know where to go with them. And a lot of times when you don't go in any direction and you're not, applying action to it you're not going to go anywhere you're just spinning your wheels you know and that's where that feeling of being stuck comes into play you know what I mean? because not doing something is doing something <laughs> you know what i mean you're not going forward you know so i uh, for you i think that's pretty awesome that you're able to recognize that you know what i mean what do you feel was the reason you were stuck like what did you find out about yourself uh, i think uh I think the reason that I was stuck was because mm -hmm. you know, I think there was a lot of reasons. I don't think it was just maybe one specific thing, but I think uh, I didn't really know 
the solution. I didn't really understand it. You know, yeah. I, a lot of times I was, I was offered very, you know, cookie cutter approaches, kind of like the one, you know, size fits all approach. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I wanted was I wanted to understand like my unique experience. So I think for me, what kept me stuck was I had, mm-hmm. I had actually like fell in love with my pain, mm. you know, and I, I didn't know who I'd be without it, you know, so like. It was like your identity, right? It was like my identity. Like, how am I going to justify or rationalize or, you know, it was like, it was the scapegoat. It was mm. the thing in my life that it was like, no matter what, you know, it's like, I'm not hurting anybody but myself, you know, like mm. the things I used to say. And I think, I think I was just so, I think I was scared of, of who I would really be and could I really do life and, um, you know, who would I be without this hole in my heart? You know, who would I be? Mm-hmm. And uh, would I, would I, if I wasn't so guarded and if I wasn't so walled up, you know, would I still, would I be hurt again? Would mm-hmm. I be vulnerable? Like, would I, and I think a lot of men are just invariably, they see vulnerability as a liability, mm-hmm. they see it as a sign of weakness. Like, oh, you get open up, you talk about your emotions, like, oh, you're weak, you're a B or whatever. And it's like, Oh, okay. So yeah, basically that was a lot of what I grew up with, you know, was, was you don't talk about what you're feeling. You don't talk about your emotions. And I think what kept me stuck is my Mm -hmm. lack of emotional intelligence, like really not understanding that like, Hey, you can be stoic and you can be strong and you can still be powerful, but Mm -hmm. you can be three dimensional. Like you can be emotional and it doesn't like there's, there's healthy vulnerability and then there's unhealthy vulnerability. It's yeah. like unhealthy vulnerability is I open up about my issues, but I don't really want solution, mm. right? I'm just sulking in it. I'm like, validate me in my victimhood. Yeah. Let me dump on you. <laughs> yeah. Like, let me emotionally dump on you. Right. And then there's healthy vulnerability. Like I'm opening up about what's going on with me, mm-hmm. but I'm doing it from a place of like, brother, this is not easy for me. And like, I kind of get this off my chest though. And this is hard. This is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I'm feeling really ashamed and embarrassed and I feel weak and I'm afraid. And it's like, there, there's power in that because if I'm feeling shame about something, right. Mm-hmm. And I get open with you about it. If I get vulnerable, right. Cause vulnerability is the true portal to healing. I can't get better if I don't reveal what's going on with me. Exactly. So if I'm shameful about something mm-hmm. and I open up about it with you and you give me empathy, Right the empathy that you offer me by saying, Hey man, you know, just even as simple as bro, I see you. Like I can relate, man. Like I've been through a lot of that too. And I totally get that. Mm -hmm. And it's all good. Like even just that, like, you don't have to give me anything profound kind of what I did for that gentleman that night. Like, it's like where there is empathy, shame struggles to exist. Yeah. Because shame and empathy are like oil and water. Mm -hmm. They have a hard time existing at the same place at the same time. So I think what kept me stuck was, my shame, Mm. fear of vulnerability, like my emotional pain that I had become so familiar with. It was like, I was addicted to being addicted. Wow. Right. Like I was addicted to like the anger and the pain and the rage and, and all of that, that was in me. And it was like, but I, but I knew on the inside, it's like, you're not really free, man. Like Mm -hmm. you determine the release date of your emotional incarceration. Like you're holding the key, man. Like, Mm -hmm. 
stop, you know, you're in the cell, like you got the key, bro, just unlock the door, you know, mm. and, but I don't want to, it's like, but I want to be free, but I like it in here. Yeah. It's like, this is my home. This is what I've called home for all my life. And it's like, what, I don't know what life looks like for me outside of this, outside of this cell. And so, you know what, I'll just push it off. And then you procrastinate mm -hmm. push it off. And you're like, Oh, I'll change tomorrow. I'll do it later. And then a lot of times it's your ego. Like, Oh, this isn't going to work for me. Like, Oh, what does this guy know? Like, what do these people know? They don't know what they're doing. Like, mm -hmm. and you already feel like you don't belong. You already feel like you're being judged. You already feel like you you're not accepted. You already feel unlovable. And so you're more likely to just project that on people. Like, Oh, people don't really care. Like, Oh, these people just want to make money or mm -hmm. like you just, you always have a, you know, a, contempt prior to investigation and preconceived notion and idea about, you know, especially about people that are interested in helping you. Yeah. And I think it takes, uh, it takes a lot of courage to really say, Hey man, like I'm struggling. Cause we've all been there. Yeah. You know, and, and we're all, I mean, we, we're still that there's moments to come like that. Mm -hmm. We're all going to go through that. And I think in, invariably as men, like, I think the generation that came before us and even the generation before them, like mm -hmm. they were just locked up emotionally, man. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It was just like this big generational curse, yeah. you know, from yeah. father to son, from father to son, yeah. you know, didn't help that they taught us, you know, growing up too. that. Hey, big boys don't cry. You know what I mean? Rub yeah, some dirt dad, on it. You know, yeah, my dad's a Vietnam veteran, dude. And my dad's from New York city and my dad grew up hard. You oh know? yeah. And um, so yeah, it was a lot of that for us too. Like we didn't, you know, the men in my house, me, my brother, and my dad, we never talked about feelings. We never talked about emotions. So I just didn't even know that was something you did. Like I just thought any emotion you felt was bad. Yeah. Like any <laughs> when you feel anything, like you shouldn't feel it, just bury it, suppress it, and just avoid it and don't mm -hmm. talk about it. And if anybody asks you about it, then just deny it mm -hmm. and, and like play it off. And you better play it off good because you don't want them to know. It's like yep. that was a lot of the way I live. Oh yeah, that's the that sounds exactly like the household I grew up. Performance household. Yeah. Where one minute <laughs> one minute you're getting beat up and then the next minute you better, you know, wipe that the blood off your it. nose and yeah, you better go it. out there and fix your hair, you know. <laughs> yep, that was it. Performance-based love, man, and and that's a part of those intergenerational wounds that come through our bloodline, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, your dad grows up, let's say with uh an emotionally unavailable father and he doesn't know why his father's emotionally unavailable he just kids make everything about them so your dad thinks that he's not good enough mm -hmm. and he thinks that he's inadequate and unlovable and then your dad tries to go out into the world and prove that he's worthy and so he chases success or he chases these things and and then he has a kid you and his son and you don't know why your dad does that so invariably you just believe the same thing your dad believed which is oh i'm not good enough i must be not that important if he doesn't want to spend time with me or connect with me that mm -hmm. must be the reason and we have these misperceptions about why people act the way they do especially when we're young man and a lot of times we carry that into our adult life and we don't want to talk about it it's like i don't want to blame my childhood it's like bro no one's blaming your childhood like it's called it's not called excuses it's called reasons man it's cause and effect it's like mm -hmm. oh you know, if you if you see a tree in your backyard that's you know withering and dying aren't you going to look at the soil like aren't you going to look at the conditions aren't you going to look at how it was grown and maybe like something happened or if you have a dog a pit bull that you get from the shelter and 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a barbecue with your buddies and you're out there flipping burgers and someone goes to pet your dog and the dog goes to almost bite the guy and he pulls his hand back and goes, whoa, you know, what's up with your dog? All you would need to do is say he's a rescue and people would automatically attribute the way the dog just reacted to the way the dog was raised or experiences that happened in the dog's life prior to, you know, you getting the dog. And so yeah. a lot of times as human beings, like we just, we discount what we've been through as having any effect on us. Mm. And uh, we don't want to talk about those things. We just, we don't want to look, especially for men, man, there's still this stigma. Like we don't want to look weak. Yeah. And it's like, is that really weakness though? Because I know for me, it was really hard. Mm-hmm. So I think that's true strength that is exhibited in those moments. I can't agree with you more. I mean, definitely takes a strong man to stand up and be like, Hey dude, I was wrong. This is what I'm dealing with. I need help. Right. And um, I think more men need to stand up and say that. And I, I'm starting to see it. That's the good thing though, Tim, is more and more, the more people I talk to, the more people are starting to get having this emotional intelligence. Right. I had a past guest, Phil Johnson, come on and he great speaker. Um, he's like the, uh, like Jordan Peterson of emotional intelligence, right? Just super solid dude. And, uh, he talked about that we needed to change our ways. Like men and women both needed to stop giving away their energy, right? And and stop just being so building these walls up to protect ourselves, right? He's like, "Oh, dude, he's like, oh, that's your ego." He's like, "You are not your ego." And that's the main thing I took out of that is you are not your ego. So stop letting it get the best of you. Stop letting people control you through your emotions crazy thing about allowing people to control you too is it's like you're giving that power away Mm -hmm. and what's crazy about it is you know we could be standing on the street corner and a car full of people could drive by in a convertible and point in our direction and laugh Mm -hmm. you know the guy next to me might have thought they were laughing at him you know i might have thought they were laughing at something behind us and you know you might have thought they thought you were handsome Mm -hmm. you know it's like your perception. And so a lot of times we think that people make us feel or situations make us feel. It's like, no, your own perception does the way that you view it. And nine times out of 10, the reason you take it personal is because it's really antagonizing something you already believe about yourself. Yep. You know, and if you don't tend to that, it's like, I've always told people, someone's behavior towards you says nothing about you. It says everything about them, but why it triggers you says everything about you and nothing about them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we think, you know, Hey, your behavior is saying something about me. It's, you know, it's, you're saying that I'm, I'm you know, it's just dis- disrespecting me or whatever that is. And, mm-hmm. and then you made me feel this way when in reality, it's like their behavior just provoked or antagonized something that already existed within you. So is it really a trigger mm-hmm. or is it an opportunity? Mm, I like that. A lot of times, like it's an opportunity for you to work on something that maybe you need to work on. And it's so true because when you're talking about that, I, I thought back of a, a point in my life where I would come home from being on the road, being away, working out of state, whatever. And um, my wife's face, you know, if she had this certain look on her face, like she needed to talk or whatever, right. Her face and the way she reacted dictated the way I was going to respond to her and to the kids. So now automatically I'm like, what's going on? What did I miss? Why are you so pissed off? Blah, blah, blah. And then I allowed her to change everything, you know what I mean? In me. And then 
being the head of household like that, we have the ability to change our environment. Okay. So when that happened, all of a sudden I'm changing our entire environment. So what I thought I was going to come home and be celebrated. Now I'm just tolerated. Now the kids can't wait for me to go back on the road. You know what I mean? It's sad because now I'm like, oh man, these kids, you know, I'm busting my butt, putting food on the table, making money, trying to buy them stuff, everything. Right. And they don't even want me around. I'm better off being on the road. I'm better off just being out there and hurt dealing with it. And it's a vicious cycle. And when you're not in touch with what's going on with you, like other people's emotions will make you Mm -hmm. like it will trigger you because in order to connect with them emotionally, you have to be in in connecting to yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, in order for you to be emotionally available for them, like in a lot of ways, you got to be emotionally available for yourself. Like, you know, you got to be able to understand, you know, what you're feeling, why you're feeling the way you are and what to do with those feelings. And I think a lot of people think like, you know, oh, I'm not supposed to feel feelings. And I think that's the goal. Like get to a place where I don't ever get triggered. It's like, nah, it's not about that. It's about what you do when you're triggered. Mm. You know, are you taking that on on people around you or are you tending to that? Are you meeting your own, you know, self? Like, how do you meet yourself? A lot of people meet themselves with self-criticism, you know? Mm. A lot of people meet themselves with um, a lot of lies, a lot of a lot of fabricated, you know, lies that they tell themselves about, you know, what they shouldn't feel or how they shouldn't feel. And I found out a lot of a lot of guys, the problem is not what they're feeling; it's the way they're thinking about what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the way they judge what they feel, and they think like, ah, I just got to get to a place where I don't feel this way. It's like, nah, man. It's about understanding what you're feeling and the value of 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 those emotions because we're emotional man we're gonna feel emotion mm-hmm. about what do you do with that like you can use that as motivation mm-hmm. like you can use that you know uh, to fuel self-destructiveness you know mm-hmm. and uh there can only fit so much in here man you yeah know what I mean? like the more you bury and you just become like your glass is all the way full and then it just takes one drop and it just spills over in anger out to everybody around you so it's like mm-hmm. gotta be in a process where you're taking care of your mental and emotional health, like on a daily basis. And, and that can be so simple, man. It could just be, you exercise a little five to 10 minute meditation, you mm-hmm. get in the word, you know, maybe you listen to a little motivational video, you know, you, uh, you, you connect and talk to other people, you know, once a week, you know, mm-hmm. but you're in the process of, you're, you're, you're not allowing that reservoir to just get all full and get stagnant water there and then it's like you you're you're constantly in a position of like hey mm. emotional maintenance mm. you know yeah for sure some of the things that i always tell like uh the students that i mentor and stuff like that you know is uh laugh it out you know laughter is as they say the best medicine you know what i mean try to oh, look oh, at yeah. try to look at the the brighter yeah. side of life you know um another one too is like a lot of times you're on the go or you're not doing anything you're waiting for the next best job right you're or the next job coming up right so you're constantly fight or flight fight or flight and that's that's there's a lot of stress in that right so i tell them to loosen up you know what i mean when you're sitting in that truck waiting for the next outage or whatever like that your bodies are naturally going to stiffen up sitting in that car right or even in the desk all day you know what i mean so that starts taking a toll on our minds so I tell them to get up, start, get moving. You know what I mean? Walk around, do jumping jacks, do some push-ups. You know what I mean? Start framing an arm out, whatever, whatever you need to do, you know, um, vitamin D, uh, read a book, uh, 
Start making connections. Get off the darn phone and start talking to people. Start living life. Stop living yeah. life through your phone and start having conversations with real people, right? And then last but not least, you know what I mean? Take time to breathe, bro. Just breathe, right? It sounds simple, but it works, you know? And that's some of the ways I talk to the guys about de-stressing their life, you know? Yeah, a lot of guys are so concerned about, you know, their kids, their kids. And it's like, bro, you're going to an early grave at this. Thing. Mm. Like, Look how chronically stressed you are. Like, you know, you can turn on stress with your own mind. And it's like, if you're in the jungle searching for lunch and you come across a porcupine, you're going to spear that animal. Mm. You, know, you turn around, there's a lion behind you. Your body's going to release a lot of stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol. It's going to get released by your adrenal glands into your body, your brain and body. You're going to go into fight or flight and you're going to run away from that animal. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you know, eventually come out of that state when you get away from that animal. What, but what if that animal is, you know, your job or what about if that animal is, you know, your negative thoughts about some event or even yourself, or, you know, you're, you know, you turn into this bitter, angry person, chronically stressed. And, um, you know, at some point in time, that kind of like where I was at, that becomes your default. It becomes mm -hmm. kind of your state of being where you just kind of wake up in that state now. And it becomes kind of almost predictable where when your body doesn't feel that way, mm -hmm. you'll look for something to make you feel that way because you're addicted to it. You're addicted because emotions are nothing more than chemicals, man. And, and yep. it, you can literally get addicted to you can have emotional addiction you know it's like people watching the news for the for the new fear and the new it's like people uh constantly telling the same story over and over again or dropping everything for a potential crisis or mm -hmm. you know it's like people that literally are addicted to the cortisol the adrenaline the stress mm -hmm. and um yeah man i think it's i think stress management is huge especially as fathers and as men it's like mm -hmm. We have to make sure that like we're in a position of constantly, again, like you said, you know, managing our stress because how many men die every year because they don't manage their stress? My and, brother, <laughs> 38 yeah. years old, brother, the day before his 39th birthday, super stressed, uh, really healthy and everything. But I mean, just always stressed about his job, about pushing his crew, about his marriage about his kids about the farm everything right just all this stress on his life and he succumbed to a heart attack dude 38 years old bro and it's like we don't you know people don't believe those stories you know that no. never happened to me you know it's and it's at the end of the day it's like man that that could absolutely happen to you mm -hmm. and you know what i loved about what you said is it's 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 like these little practices and you know sometimes like we're just so used to moving through life and not you know building a daily you know self-care practice yeah and uh you know the most successful guys in the world have have achieved a sense of self-discipline with their daily practice and like mm -hmm. i said it could be the smallest little things you know you put on a little 10 minute wim hof breathing in the morning you're making sure you're getting seven seven to eight hours of rest you know you're minimizing the amount of time that you know you're on your phone, like you were saying, you're, you know, it's just, it's the state of mind that you're in. And, you know, how do you, how do you manage that when you come home? Mm. You know, like, are, are you, because here's the thing, like kids, like I said before, kids make everything about them. 
Yes, they do. Right. Like if my dad's an alcoholic and he hates his job and he hates his marriage with my mom and he comes home from work and he's just angry and he displaces his anger out on me like a guy who kicks his dog who hates his job. And let's just say he takes his anger out on me. My perception of that as a young boy is that it's because of me. Yep. You know, and it's like we're responsible for being we are the template. You know, we are the template for our children. So what you know they're going to watch through observational learning right mm -hmm. how how does my dad regulate oh he doesn't or my dad regulates with coors light mm -hmm. oh my dad regulates with porn oh my dad regulates by yelling at my mom mm -hmm. oh my dad regulates you know by going to the bar with his buddies like oh my dad reg like how does your dad how does how do you regulate your emotions because our real job is to get on one knee and look our kids in the eye and say, hey, and help them understand what they're feeling. It's like, hey, son, look at me. Mm -hmm. You're feeling anxious. It's like, hey, I feel like that too sometimes. What you're feeling is called anxiety. And it's like, hey, that's okay. Like, come get in the truck with me and let's go for a ride really quick. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about anxiety and what I do to help manage my anxiety. That, that, that changes a kid's life, man. Yeah. You no, know, like... And then a kid learns like, oh, wow, I just do this quick little like three breath thing that my dad taught me. Or like mm -hmm. when I'm anxious, I'm not afraid that I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. I don't judge my anxiety. I just realize, hey, like I'm just anxious. That's OK, but it's not going to stop me from playing this game. It's not going to stop me from raising my hand. It's not going to stop me from going in front of the class right now for this book report. It's mm -hmm. like they learn to not be afraid of what they're feeling. And there is a generation of men that are yes. terrified of what they feel. And, and they're so scared of what they feel that they'll do anything and everything to numb it, run away from it, deny it, evade it, suppress it. Right. And so it's, it, it all starts with like, we, if we want to break the cycle with our kids, the mm -hmm. best way to do that is, is to really develop that emotional intelligence mm -hmm. because that is key to like, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? You know? Yeah. No, man, I like what you said about getting on your knee and just talking to your son and not shaming him. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're telling him, hey, you shouldn't be feeling anxious. No, that's wrong. Yeah. I mean, gosh, man, look how much damage you're going to have to <laughs> put out the fire in that situation that you just created, right? When it could have yeah. just been addressed simply by saying, hey, man, I got you. I've, I felt like that too. And explaining the why. Um. I tell fathers now, and I tell even other linemen that are out there and apprentices, you got to explain the why, you know, a lot of times when we're training people or whatever, they're going to ask why. And if you can't give them that, why they're not going to buy into it. Right. It's not no longer because I said so. It's like, dude, just take that little extra time and explain to them. Okay. Well, the reason behind this, the reason why this is happening, the reason why you need to do this, and then they'll buy into it. They'll be like, oh, okay. Makes yep. sense. You know what I mean? It's yep. just little things you got to just do, you know, stop being lazy. <laughs> you know? Powerful, man, because so many times it's like, you know, a lot of dads just, why are you anxious? Mm -hmm. Oh, you shouldn't be anxious or, you know, stop. Like, you know, you should be positive or, you know, and then, and then the kids developing a relationship with his emotions as basically that there's a scary place in me that I don't have the tools or resources to deal with it. Mm -hmm. I subconsciously believe that I can't deal with it. And so that's where drugs come into the picture. That's where other addictive and compulsive behaviors and self-destructiveness come into the picture where those things become a solution. They become an outlet. They become a way to cope.
Mm. And um, I think, you know, as, as I, I loved what you said, and I totally agree as I think as men are waking up to this, mm. I think we're realizing like, Oh, okay. I can be multidimensional. Mm. Like I can be, I don't have to be one guy, one dimensional man who is the same at work that he is at home, that he is with his marriage that he is. It's like, no man, I'm multidimensional. Like I'm not going to be the same guy at work that I am at home with my kids. And that's okay. Like, I don't have to be emotional with these guys on the job. Like I can, you know, I can be emotional with my family. I can be vulnerable with my wife. Mm -hmm. I can tell my wife, like a lot of guys, a lot of guys, wives don't even know about their childhood trauma. Yeah. It's like, you know, his wife doesn't know that he was sexually abused. Mm -hmm. It's like they have all these intimacy issues. Wife has no idea. You know, and it's like they're having all this conflict mm -hmm. all triggered when they get intimate. And it's like, OK, well, the wife has no idea. Mm. And, and it's like so important that. We know and understand, like in relationships. Where we've both been. Yep. Because it's like, oh, well, now I'm understanding what's triggering you. And I'm understanding like to be more sensitive in that area. And when you do get triggered, like I can be more, I can tend to that because I know and understand why this is happening with, and a really powerful exercise I used to do with men back in the day is mm -hmm. I still do it is, um, I used to do like a threefold on a, on a card where mm -hmm. I do on a whiteboard and do three columns. So the columns were what I portray, right? Who you portray yourself to be to the world. Right, mm -hmm. which is on the outside, right? Who you portray yourself to be on the outside. The middle section was what I hide. Mm -hmm. So all the things I hide about myself that you don't know about. And then the last section is what others see. So you would fill out the what you portray to the world and then what you hide from the world. And then everybody else fills out what they see. And uh, it's powerful, man, because a lot of times guys would open up about something. Mm -hmm. you know, some type of traumatic thing that happened to them. And um, nine times out of 10, if not 10 times out of 10, there's another man in there who, who, because that man opened up, he gave another man permission. Wow. He gave him permission, right? Mm -hmm. So the man opened up, he got vulnerable. And that man sitting there watching that felt like he had permission to say, Hey man, man, that was powerful. Timothy, um, Man, thank you so much for coming on, brother, and sharing with us. Um, yeah, how can you? How can our audience get a hold of you? I know you're big on social media. If they can get a hold of you, reach out to you. Can you please share it with our audience, if you don't mind? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on Facebook, Beyond Driven. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, Beyond underscore underscore Driven. Mm -hmm. um, www.beyond-driven.com. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Once again, brother, thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything that you told our audience about, man, and just being so authentic with it. I appreciate that. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon, brother. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, my honor and privilege. Thanks again, man. Absolutely.